Welcome to What Compassion Accomplishes, a podcast dedicated to sharing information, ideas, and resources about domestic abuse and sexual assault. The topics discussed in this podcast, including survivor stories, supportive services, and domestic abuse or sexual violence, can be difficult, and we urge you to listen with care. Our hosts are not licensed counselors or mental health professionals. If you or someone you care about have experienced domestic, dating, or sexual violence, please call the WCA's 24-hour hotline at 208-343-7025 or the National Domestic Violence Hotline 1-800-799-7233. You can also find more resources in the description of this podcast. A survivor's story of abuse and healing. I am a victim of domestic violence. I am a survivor. What I choose to call myself depends on which part of my story I am telling. Because I do honestly think that only by some grace did I actually survive some things. And other parts, I know I was victimized by someone who claimed to love me. And I know there is no shame in that. I feel no guilt in saying that I'm a victim of domestic violence. But it took me many years to get to that point. So this is why I am here today sharing with you why I do what I do in hopes that you will share my passion for helping those being hurt by those that are supposed to love and respect them. I was 16 years old when my boyfriend put a bullet into the chamber of a gun, spun the chamber around while staring at me silently, and then grabbed me, held me down on the twin bed in his garage bedroom of his parents' home. It was late afternoon on a sunny day. I'd just gotten out of school. Nobody else was around. He held the gun in front of my face while yelling at me in anger, alternately threatening me and pleading with me. He'd had the gun already sitting out when I arrived. Warning bells went off. This wasn't the first time I'd seen this gun. He'd threatened to kill himself before. He couldn't live without me. My parents did not want me to see him anymore. He didn't want me to end our relationship. This was the first time he actually turned the gun on me. Click. He pulled the trigger. Just once. I survived that. I did not tell anyone about that right away. I certainly did not tell my parents. You see, I, was supposed, I wasn't supposed to see him. My parents had taken out a restraining order against him on my behalf. He wasn't supposed to contact me or come near me. But somehow, through my friends and other means, he still managed to. And I allowed it. I still believed he loved me. And I thought he really might hurt himself. The restraining order resulted from a night when I was at a cheerleading sleepover that the new head cheerleader had planned for all the girls who had made the team for the following year. It was just supposed to be girls. And that is what I had told my boyfriend. I guess he must have been watching her house because when some of the upper-class boys showed up, someone told me my boyfriend was suddenly outside and wanted to talk to me. Only he had no business there. He wasn't even in high school anymore and did not hang out with those boys. I immediately knew he'd be very angry and that I was going to be in big trouble before I even went outside to talk to him. I just did not know how mad he was going to be. He accused me of lying. He accused me of cheating. I tried to calm him down. He wanted me to leave with him. And I told him I didn't want to go. I was supposed to stay with my friends that night. I was so embarrassed. 
Before I knew what was happening, he picked me up and threw me down on the street head first. Then he grabbed me and stuffed me in the backseat of his car and pulled away, tires squealing. I begged and pleaded for him to take me back. In my mind, I just thought I could pretend that this just wasn't happening. As my head pounded and my ears were still ringing, only my night of terror and confusion had just begun. I crawled in the front seat and kept pleading with him, tried reasoning with him, to no avail. I didn't know where all we drove, but eventually, he kept, he began hitting me. I crawled behind the driver's seat and shrank into a ball, trying to get away from his fists. He drove toward Cascade, uh, uh, a mountain town, saying we were going to my family's cabin for the night, but we never made it. We ran low on gas. He slowed the car down and told me I could get out. So I did. But I didn't know where to go or what to do in the early dawn, in the middle of nowhere. And this was the time before we had cell phones. So I walked on the side of the road for who knows how long. It was cold. Until he pulled back up, and I got back into the car with him. He'd calmed down. He'd begged off some gas from someone in town, he said. He said he was sorry. I'd made him do this. But if I had not lied about those boys being at the party, he would not have freaked out. And now I'd have to tell everyone that I snuck out and spent the night with him. On purpose. I agreed that was going to be our story. I was still terrified. I wanted this nightmare to end. I just wanted this to go away. I was really hoping nobody would know. I wanted to go back in time and for none of this to have happened. I wanted the charming, dashing, 18-year-old knight in shining armor I'd met when I was a 14-year-old freshman. The boy who'd swept me off my feet. The one who'd said he'd love me like nobody else ever would. The one who said I was beautiful even though everyone just said I was cute. I wanted the romantic boy who left me love notes in my locker every single day and flowers on my car, the first boy I had ever kissed. But that boy did not exist. That boy was really the man in the car next to me who had just kidnapped me, who wanted me to lie about it and take the blame, who had once again convinced me I was to blame for his behavior. However, this time, he was not going to get away with it. My parents had been called when he had taken me away. Someone had witnessed what went down and told my parents at the home. They had been searching for me all night long, and the sheriff had been alerted. My parents took me to the emergency room where I was given an exam. I recently found the body assessment with the X's on it and my mother's things after she passed away. This is when I was 45 years old. The X's were they mark injuries. These X's had notes indicating deep bruising. Bruising on my back, bruising on my kidneys. I had deep bruising all over my lower back and several other internal organs. I did not change for gym class in the locker room or in front of anyone for weeks. I survived that. The problem is that I still did not stay away from him completely, though my parents tried. I had counseling, assertiveness training, grounding. You see... I truly believed he loved me. Only now I know I had such a warped concept, concept of what love really should be. My brain had been rewired. He had convinced me nobody else would want me and that somehow I was responsible for the things he did and said. It took me years to learn what positive boundaries were and what a healthy relationship looked like. I didn't grow up in a home where violence was present. I simply encountered it in my very first attempt at a young teen relationship. I had nightmares for years, and when I ran into him, I would feel physically ill. I would shake. I'm from a small town, and I did indeed encounter him. To this day, 
I still find myself looking over my shoulder sometimes because as a victim, some of that never truly goes away. It's called trauma. But you can take your power back. You can help ensure that others get the help they need and that we can work together to break the cycle of domestic violence in our community so that no other young girls or boys have to stand before a crowd and say the words, I survived that. Thank you. If you've been listening to the series, uh, this obviously uh, this started differently than most do. That was a survivor story. And unfortunately and sadly, it's something that happens way, way too often to way too many. Life is forever altered. And how to be able to change that takes takes time and a lot of healing. But as Chris was saying as she read that survivor story, that trauma never truly, truly goes away. But there is help, though. There are resources that can at least help with the trauma. Yeah, Corey, um, that's a that is a um, that's a really good point to come out of that. There's a lot of things you can take out of that story if you're listening, and I think that's one thing I hope is a big takeaway is that if you are a victim or a survivor, and um, you know wherever you identify, if you if you are listening and you have experienced something like that, it's okay. However, wherever you fall in that spectrum in your journey, um, it's okay. We all hope that um, eventually everyone identifies as a survivor, but trauma, um, it it keeps, it stores up in the body. And sometimes that never truly goes away, but you can, um, find help to, uh, learn to deal with it and process it. And some of that you can shed, but there's no shame in reaching out. And there are people who can help you process that. Um, but it does stay with you. It does. It's, that's a real thing. There's so much research about trauma and it, it can scope and shape uh, how you interact with people, whether that's um, coworkers, relationships, your children. Being exposed to domestic violence in the home as children, being exposed to it in abusive relationships as teenagers, and it does happen in teen relationships. You don't have to be married. No. It doesn't have to be a heterosexual relationship between a husband and a wife. It can happen in teen relationships. It can happen in college relationships. And it does far more. It's far more prevalent than you as, you as parents want to recognize. We we hear outrageous things from uh, our, our prevention manager and, the, and our, our staff members who go into school. The things that happen between teenagers is is terrifying. Yes. Because some of it is they may not know any better. They don't understand boundaries, which is what some of the things we te- we try to help them understand, emotional intelligence, boundaries, language, what, you know, what is abuse from, you know, isolating people, um, trying to control who they see, demanding to monitor social media and checking your phone and constant check-ins and and threatening self-harm. That's a theme I think out of that story that's a really big one is if a partner, whether it's a husband, a wife, a boyfriend, girlfriend, if somebody is threatening self-harm because they want to end the rela- you want to end the relationship or one partner wants to end the relationship, 
that is an abusive tactic. That is a tactic of power and control. And it is very, very real. And especially with young people or someone who's been in an abusive relationship for a time, it is it is a, a huge, not only red flag, but it's a form of power and control that people use to keep somebody else in a relationship. And it is very, very scary. And when that starts happening, that's also a very a time when it's very dangerous. I think that's one thing in that story that really does stand out is when that turned and it could have been very, that could have had a very different outcome in that situation. Oh, absolutely. And that's why um, the victim in that case stayed. When the, I mean, when a, when a gun or a weapon is introduced into a situation, that is when it can become lethal in, in the snap of a finger. And, and when somebody is threatening self-harm and they introduce a, a weapon and somebody stays because they feel responsible for keeping someone else alive, that's when we try to... We really try to communicate or we, we try to educate. I, I'm not a clinician. I, I need to say that. We, we are outreach. We, are, we, we do education. Right. We try to educate and, and share that information that you are not responsible for keeping someone else alive. That is not your job. You, and if you love someone and you, you suddenly are assume, assuming that role to keep them alive because they are threatening self-harm, I hope that, that planting that seed that that is not your responsibility. If they are abusing you or mistreating you and then they threaten self-harm, that is not your role. That is not your job. And that is extremely unhealthy and that can turn dangerous. So if you hear that somebody else is sharing with you that that's happening in their relationship, please share with them that that's the biggest red flag. That is not, that's the number one red flag. It is not okay. No. It is not your job to keep somebody else alive. And I think that's also a, another important thing is like when someone – is in that situation and someone asks, well, why are you staying? Like they are threatening their own life with a gun or your own life. And we have to think of reasons why people stay. And a huge reason is love. And they love that person. They obviously don't want that person to hurt themselves, hurt anyone else. And so you can't just ask these victim blaming questions because there's, there's a ton of different reasons why people stay in love is a huge one and you don't want to see that person hurt. So obviously you will do whatever you can do to help that person because you love them and you care about them. So if someone does, so how do you reframe that Becca, right? Instead of saying, why do you stay? It's I'm concerned about you Mm -hmm. because even knowing that when a gun is introduced, um, that is when the, you know, homicide is almost the next step. That is when a lot of homicides occur. So I'm concerned about you. But it's not your job to keep somebody else alive. Like they need some help and that's not your job. Um, that's when it's time to call in a mental health professional or get them some help. Yes. Um, and I'm worried about you, right? I am worried exactly. about you. You deserve to be with someone who treats you well. Mm-hmm. Those are some, those are some you know, phrases you can use. So yes, you, you also hit on something that I think is really important is why do you stay? And getting angry with someone to the point that they're not, they don't feel comfortable sharing what's going on. I think that's another, you, you heard that a couple of times. I didn't tell anybody. I certainly didn't tell my parents. I didn't tell my friends because I still believed the person, you know, the boyfriend loved me and I was embarrassed. That was another theme in there too. Repeated a few times, I was embarrassed. So still loving. And that young lady had been worn down it sounded like several years of this worn down to believe that that boyfriend loved her and that nobody else would so 
it sounds like if you, you know, extract some of that story, no violence in the home, both parents, they were parents, and this young person, it said, was a cheerleader, so obviously had some social, you know, had, you're assuming had friends, had two parents in the home, there was no violence in the home, but this was the first time they had any kind of relationship, and it wore that young lady down. So that's the perfect storm. Mm -hmm. That's how those things happen. And so if you know something like this is going on, reach out to an organization like the WCA. You can call our hotline. You can reach out and ask for some help in finding the right words to use in talking with someone. You can ask some questions and express your concern for someone else because there are things that you can say that will actually shut that person down and they won't let you know if something's going on. If mm-hmm. your parents, if your aunts or uncles, and you're concerned about a child in your life, because 16-year-olds are children, 14-year-olds yes. are children, and they're having relationships, they are, um, that can be very, very damaging. And some of that trauma can last a lifetime. Um, it just can. Well, and the one thing in that young lady's story of survival we that was one click, one chamber away from us never hearing that story and her not being a survivor, instead being a statistic, being a news story, one click could have made all the difference. Yeah. Luckily it worked out the way it did, and she's able to share her story and to empower other people and give this hopefully the strength to someone else who is in that situation to be a survivor, to get out, to get the help that, that you need, you deserve. And far too often that outcome is much different. Thank God that young lady is able to share her story. And you know, one thing that I think is really important for us to acknowledge is that as teenagers, they think they're immortal. Of course. And don't understand what don't understand what danger is, um, and you know who who knows at what point in time that young lady who then became an adult really understood you know what, what understood the danger that was in, but um, that she was really in, and that's you know as as adults. It's our job to try to, you know, wear your seatbelt and don't stay out too late. Don't drink and don't do drugs and, you know, all of those things. But um, when it comes to abusive relationships, that's almost like a taboo subject. You don't talk to them. You don't talk to them about, you know, a lot lot of parents are getting better about having these conversations, but they're hard conversations to have. But really talk to your teens. Mm -hmm. Talk to them. Figure out. Start talking to them early. You know, we want to talk to them about consent. You want to talk about, but you don't think you have to talk to your teens about, gosh, if somebody, you know, pulls a gun on you, what are you going to do? You think about that in terms of like stranger danger, right? Mm -hmm. But not in terms of somebody who's supposed to love you. Yeah, we're always taught stay away from strangers. If someone grabs you, you scream, don't get in anyone's cars. We don't have conversations about people that are supposed to love us and take care of us because we think that's safe. But most of the time when it even comes to like sexual assault, eight out of 10 times, um, the, the victim knows the perpetrator. It is someone that um, is close to them. So we've got to start talking to our kids, 
to our young adults, middle school, junior high age, is the almost the prime time, the sweet spot. You've got to start talking to them then because they are forming opinions, really strong opinions. They're having those feelings, hormones. I say hormones. They're having those, and they're starting to form relationships, and they're doing a lot of things that you may not want to know they're doing. Really, quote, unquote, you don't want to know, but they're doing it. Um, a lot of them are. And they're thinking about doing those things and having those relationships, even if they aren't. And so you've got to, we've got to start talking to our kids because they are going to grow up to be adults and have relationships. And so, and talk to your boys and your girls because guess what, folks? Women can be abusers as well. Yep. And, and, I, and I want to say I, I don't want to pigeonhole humans into any kind of gender. So this, this is across all gender expressions. Abusers abuse and anyone can be a victim. So I want to put that out there. So just because you have a boy doesn't mean they're safe from being a victim of abuse or sexual assault. So talk to your boys. Talk to your boys about being respectful, but talk to them about, about what might happen if they are being disrespected because they can just as easily be a victim. Um, or um, if you have a, a child who is a member of that, a, a different gender expression than just a, a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, because they can, well, they're far more likely to become a victim. So talk to them. Talk to them about boundaries. Talk to them about what they're comfortable with. Talk to them about consent. And I'm not talking about sex when I'm talking about consent, just sex. I'm talking about, you know, is it okay to hold hands? Is it okay um, to, for someone to hug you? Um, friends family members, anybody, because it's your body, it's your person, it's your space. And you should be the one to allow anyone to come into your personal bubble. Um, if somebody's speaking to you in a way that makes you not feel comfortable, then it's your right to say, hey, I don't really like it when you say that, or I don't like the way you're talking to me. Um, maybe X, Y, Z. There's nothing wrong with that, folks, and that's how it has to start. Um, if we want to put a stop to our young people being in situations where somebody puts a bullet into the chamber of a gun and spins it around and they're too afraid to tell anybody about it, we've got to start talking to them about consent and respect and being able to speak up and not being feared of um, being shunned or, or feeling shameful. So it starts with talking. It starts with us talking about it right now. It starts with you listening to this and thinking, okay, I'm going to go talk to my niece, my nephew, um, you know, and I'm going to ask them what's going on and how do they talk to their friends? Um, those are, those are the, this is how we change our community. This is how we change outcomes for future generations. And until we live in a world where there isn't abuse of any form, we need to continue to keep talking and keep reminding because someone who is in a situation of abuse, the one time you talk to them, they might not be open to the conversation. They might be in denial. They still love that person. They swear that person loves them. Whatever the situation is, the second time you might not get through, keep having the conversation because sometime, and hopefully before it's too late, one of those conversations is actually going to be the time when that it gives that person the strength 
to call the WCA, to call the national hotline, to reach out and want to find help. Well, and you can also offer them a ride somewhere. You can offer them to sleep on your couch. Yes. You can just say, let's go for a walk. It can even be something as subtle as that, um, continuing that just to be there. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, whatever you need. And when they're ready, they will take you up on it. And uh, nationally, the national statistic indicates that it takes someone leaving that relationship seven times before they leave for good. Yeah. And there's, there's a vast array of reasons, reasons or barriers um, for why people choose not to leave. Um, and it, it, it is, you know, and that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. Um, but there's barriers to leaving children, uh, finances, lack of um, income. Right now, you know, where we live, we're, we're in Boise, Idaho, and it is the, the, the housing uh, market right now is, is incredibly frightening. We're mm-hmm. in a crisis. Like the cost of rent is uh, an apartment. If you can find one, it's prohibitive right. for most people. So, and if you own your home right now, you are really lucky. Mm-hmm. So leaving and actually finding a place to live is a real, it's not just a concern. It's a, it's a huge barrier. Yeah. So you had the week you were just coming out of the pandemic, you know, global pandemic right now. And we had, um, you know, a huge, um, like an 84% increase in calls to our domestic violence hotline in 2020 ask requests for help. We had, 19 emergency intakes into our shelter. I believe that's a 284% increase over the prior year. 284% increase. We have four year. Yeah. We had four the prior year. That's just emergency intakes into shelter. Yeah. So that is people who needed to be out of their home. Well, and that's a whole nother conversation is the victim having to leave the home because the the lethality risk was so high. Mm -hmm. So... But there's, they didn't obviously have anywhere else safe to go. Right. So you can offer resources. You just can just keep asking. And I would really encourage you, if you're feeling frustrated because you don't understand why somebody's not leaving and they are, you're really worried about them, and even if they're being physically abused or they're being controlled and they're isolated, please try not to get frustrated because there are so many reasons. And it's about power and control, and it's very psychological, and they have been worn down. Just don't give up. No, and always let that person know that you're there. And so, yeah, as much as I, I understand that it can be very frustrating because you love this person and you can see it. Mm-hmm. You see what's happening to them and you want to save them. But you can't. They have to be ready to save themselves. But let them always know you're there. So when that moment comes... They know that you're going to be there for them, that you're going to, with open arms, bring them in, help them. If you're in that situation and you don't have a person in your life, maybe I I know a lot of times people will move here. Couples will move here or someone moves here, doesn't have family, doesn't have friends. They're in a relationship and that is the only person that they know. And that abuser will use that leverage and will manipulate you to stay by making you believe no one else will love you. 
you'll have nowhere to live. You'll be sleeping on the streets. Whatever tactic that they use, that's not love. That's the complete opposite of love. Reach out in the description of the podcast here. There's the WCA hotline. There's the national hotline if you're listening somewhere else in the country. Just know that there is help and there's light on the other side. We want you to be a survivor, not a statistic. Today, just know everyone deserves to be healthy, happy within themselves and in their relationships. Thank you for listening once again, and we'll talk next time on What Compassion Accomplishes. Thank you for listening to this episode of What Compassion Accomplishes. Again, if you or someone you know has experienced domestic abuse, dating, or sexual violence, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or the WCA's 24-hour hotline 208-343-7025.